our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. Oh, let's make it chapter 2. As we consider this wonderful season in our culture and around the world that's set aside to celebrate and to remember the birth of the Savior of the world. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and just wave and they'll get one into your hands and it'll be marked to our passage today. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come And worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there till I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and, it, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying out of Egypt I called my son and then Herod when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, so much this morning for our Savior. And as Pastor Matt has already prayed in our heart, has already leapt at the amen of your Holy Spirit in our heart. We are so grateful for the life that is ours because of him. We think of the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but 
than to be freed from the bondage of sin, to be given hope and meaning and purpose in life. And he really is the gift that keeps on giving and into our lives and will do so forever. And from this place this morning, from our individual hearts, our collective hearts, we unite them together and we bless you, Father, and we praise you and we thank you for the Savior that you have sent into the world that we might be forgiven, but even more to know you and to have relationship with you. We ask that you freshly fill us with your spirit. Give us a capacity to supernaturally understand your word and receive, Lord, the beauty, the truth, the spirit of it into our lives today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At the dedication of Jesus by Joseph and Mary at the temple in Jerusalem when he was 40 days old, all of this done in accordance with the law of Moses, a man by the name of Simeon took Jesus in his arms and he lifted up a prayer of thanks to God for allowing him to have lived long enough to see the birth of the Messiah. And the record of it in Luke chapter 2 goes like this. And he took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then he proceeded to speak a prophecy to Mary of the effect that her son would have upon the whole world. He turned to her in that same passage and declared to her, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, And then for our purposes this morning, he declared that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And in that prophecy, he declared one of the greatest truths ever spoken concerning Jesus when he declared that by him, that is by Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. And that is that the life of Jesus would expose the thoughts, the deep streams, the hearts of many, many people. In other words, what a person does with Jesus, he was saying, in either accepting him as Messiah or as Savior or as Lord or rejecting him as Messiah, Savior or Lord, is never ultimately a reflection upon Jesus. Who and what, what we think of Jesus... Who he is and what he is is never ultimately a reflection on him. It's always a reflection upon our own heart and it is a, and the condition of a person's heart. That single decision concerning what we do with Jesus in this life, either in accepting him or rejecting him, exposes each of our hearts at its very, very core like nothing else does in life. Either 
exposing our hearts as either good or bad or loving light or loving darkness. And in this passage, this Bible passage we're examining here this morning, we see this declaration of Simeon played out before our very eyes in human history. Because in this passage, we have three different groups of people who are made aware of Jesus. They each received the same news concerning the birth of the promised Savior, the promised Messiah of the world. And each of those three groups in receiving that same message, the same information, the same news, each one responds differently. And one group responds in a way that's worthy of the news, worthy of Jesus, and two of the groups responded in a way that was unworthy of him. And first we see the the reaction of the wise men as it's recorded in verses 1 and 2 and then verses 7 through 12. Concerning who and what the magi were, these wise men, they were called magi. We get our English word magic uh, from the very same word. They were essentially the astronomers and the astrologers of their day. And in those days, there was very little difference between the two titles. These were men who gave their life to the study of the stars, the study of the heavens, for the reason, simple reason that they believed that the heavens were the habitation of God. And they studied the stars out of the hope that in studying this creation of God, that somehow they might received some kind of revelation concerning the God who had created them in the hope of receiving some wisdom, some direction, some revelation. They believed in both God and in science. They didn't consider it inconsistent or contrary to do so. These men would have been highly educated men in science, in philosophy, in medicine, At the same time, they were great believers in the supernatural of life around them. They would have been highly esteemed within their culture, very powerful men. They would have held powerful positions in the nation of their origin. They were probably government officials or advisors to the very highest government officials in their land, like those when we read in the Old Testament book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by wise men, by counselors, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar brought them his dream and they were unable to give the interpretation of it. Daniel ultimately gave the interpretation of his dreams. But these were, these were the kind of men that these uh, magi were. They would have also have been very, very wealthy men by virtue of their position of, of power and, and being close to the power brokers within their nation. It's very possible as well that they were students of the Old Testament on some level. Many Jewish scholars had migrated east and they had brought the Old Testament scriptures with them. And so perhaps a intellectual or philosophical religious exchange occurred between these magi and these students of, of the scriptures. Additionally, the uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, known as the Septuagint. That's been in existence at this point for a couple of hundred years and is spread out into the land of the Gentiles. 
And being from the East, perhaps they even studied their ancient history uh, from the Old Testament books. And perhaps they were even great students of the Law and the Prophets and maybe even studying uh, in Daniel, the ministry of Daniel in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar and reading Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9 concerning the very time that the Messiah would come into the world and perhaps knowing that the time was near, they began to seek God's meaning concerning all of it. Or perhaps they read in the book of Numbers of Balaam's prophecy concerning a star that would come out of Jacob, out of the nation of Israel. And despite all of the attempts by Balak to get Balaam to pronounce a series of curses upon the children of Israel, upon the tribes of of Jacob, that one great blessing after another poured out of his heart, including this great prophecy concerning the fact that a Messiah, a star, would come out of Jacob to become a blessing to the whole world. And God and the Magi began to seek God concerning the meaning of this star. We noticed that they weren't content merely to see the star. The star appeared to them. They recognized that it was something extraordinary, different than the rhyme and rhythm of, of the sequence and the movement of the stars and the course of a year all in front of them as they would study the heavens. This star was different. This was extraordinary. This was what they were looking for. The whole reason that they studied the stars was that somehow they would find a way in which God was communicating to them personally. And they see this star. God gives them this supernatural revelation. But they weren't content merely to know of the birth of the newborn king. They had to see him for themselves. They had to worship him for themselves. And we don't know if uh, uh, somehow this revelation that God gave to them, somehow they recognized this star for exactly what it was and that this star would lead them to the king of the Jews and that they were to go and to worship this king of the Jews. One of the things that's beautiful about the passage is to realize how gracious God is to meet people like us as well where they are in their search for truth and in their search for the meaning of life and then lead us from these Seven billion different places that seven billion different people in this world find themselves in today. God is able to meet them in the place that they're in. And all of their superstition, all of their ignorance, all of their distance from God. And as long as he can recognize within them a sincere heart to know the truth about God, the meaning of life, then he comes alongside that life and he will add to that life whatever is necessary supernaturally by himself to then ultimately bring that person from their darkness, their superstition, their background, their geographical distance from Bethlehem to then bring that person to the very feet of Jesus and to find the salvation that is found in him. How unfailingly the Holy Spirit does that. They were looking to God behind the heavens, the God of creation, to communicate to them in some way, to give them wisdom and understanding of His will. And God broke through again all of those superstitions and all their wrong ideas in order to lead them to the truth concerning life. And He does it 
all around the world today, bringing honest seekers after him into the contact of the truth concerning his son. He will unfailingly lead anyone who genuinely wants to know the truth about life, about God, about salvation to his son. That person will always be led in some way, by some means, to Jesus. I mean, you look at this entire scene that's recorded here in Matthew chapter 2, surrounding the birth of Jesus. And you think, why in the world would this do these wise men, what do they have to do with the birth of Jesus at all? Why is it necessary information? Why would God use half a chapter or more to recur, record all of the events uh, surrounding their lives and their search for God and ultimately being brought to the feet of Jesus? Why would he encumber his biblical record? What in the world are they intended to teach us? And what they're intended to teach us is that honest seekers, they were indeed, and God leads all honest seekers into the worship of his Son. And I'll tell you, I think it's wonderful to realize that all over this world today, the population of the world now, 7 billion, and all over this world, all day, every day, in every single one of those lives, God is working by his Holy Spirit to bring every single one of those people to his Son, to Jesus, in order to find the salvation and everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins that is found in him and him alone. He does it all in India, Russia, Bolivia, Brazil, the United States, anywhere we want to go in the world, every citizen of those countries, he's doing that all day, every day. And God isn't limited uh, in all of this. He can overcome, as he did with these magi, the distance that a person has been born from Bethlehem, the geographical distance, the religious distance, the philosophical distance that they've been raised in that puts them a million miles away from ever believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He overcomes all of it in meeting an honest seeker where they are and bringing him to the truth. I think about the stars that God will use in order to accomplish exactly that. A surgeon's star might be the realization that the body that they are operating on one day in a way that they've never seen it before is a marvel of creation. A marvel, so marvelous that only God could have created this thing. And as he, he or she has the scalpel in their hand and they're moving this and that or removing this or that or restructuring this or that, the realization occurs that I can only have, the only reason I have hope that this surgery will be advantageous for the person that I am performing it on is because I am performing this surgery on a body that has a rhyme, it has a reason, it has a structure, it has a design that allows me to believe that by doing this, that this body will recover and will be better than it has been ever before after the surgery. And that light goes on, the star goes on, 
and they realize, I've got to follow this truth concerning design and creation to where it will lead me. And God will always bring that person to a faith in Christ. You think about the author, uh, the more artistic type of person, the filmmaker who one day stops and the light goes on for them in the you know, middle of their, their life, perhaps sometimes even in the dead of night. And they come to consider and to stop and to think about why it is that audiences, by and large, like happy endings to their books and to their movies. Why is the whole world disappointed that Bambi was killed at the end of the movie? Why do we, is it when the filmmakers try to make a film and the whole thing is a downer at the end that it ends up making $7 million at the box office and it took $200 million to make? And why is it that the bestsellers, the greatest movies in history, the greatest entertainment always have a happy ending? They have something that infuses hope within a person's heart. And could it be, as they begin to give consideration to it, that innately man knows that he was created for something greater than the, what the world is now, and he longs to return to it. He longs for a happy ending, and that that happy ending is in him from God and his history with God as his creator and his history with Adam and Eve all the way back into the Garden of Eden. Or you take the new mother who is confronted now with this child that she holds at her breast and holds in her arms and realizes that she now has the awesome responsibility of fashioning the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength of an eternal human being and realizing perhaps for the first time in her life, like nothing else she's faced in life, that she's completely inadequate for the task and she finds herself then gravitating for back to church to try and discover what is the can make her sufficient for the task and she ends up getting saved. I think about people who have had their heart broken, some divorce in their life, some loss in their life. They're inconsolable. No human being can comfort them at all. And then the greatness of that loss, for the first time in their life, they feel a pain like that And then all of a sudden they turn to God and they bring it to him. And God uses that broken heart, that disappointment in life as a star to bring them ultimately to him. That crisis that occurs in another person's life that they can't solve. For the first time in their life, they don't have the money, the intelligence, the physical strength to overwhelm it with all of their resources. For the first time in their life, they find themselves in the middle of the night saying, God, if you are real, and I hope that you are real, I need your help. Please get me out of this situation. And then for them in their life, they're looking at a star. It's the beginning where God then uses that to bring them ultimately to his son. And the same thing can be said of the bankruptcy or some bondage to sin where a person realizes, I'm no longer in control of this sin. This sin is in control of me. And I need, and it is in such control of me, I'm going to need God Almighty himself to deliver me from this sin. And again, the prayer goes up, God, if you are real, 
would you please bring me out of the life that I've constructed for myself and what I thought was my own wisdom. And that's their star. And God will take them from that place and bring them ultimately to his son. How wonderful it is this morning as a Christian to just stop and remember your testimony. And yes, the Holy Spirit brought you to Jesus. Sometimes we think about all of this and we can think that, you know, I came to know uh, the Lord in and of myself. Jesus said, no one comes to me except the Father draws him. There is a star involved in all of it, something that the Holy Spirit used to get our attention and to put us on the journey for what is the meaning and the purpose of life. How can I be forgiven of my sins? And wonderful to think this morning, not only about our testimony, but what was the circumstance? What was the situation? What was it in our lives that was happening that God then took that, just like the Magi here, and brought us to a faith in Christ? The the events surrounding their arrival in getting to Uh, Bethlehem are fascinating. They came from the east, we're told in verse 1. They came to Jerusalem, and they came to Jerusalem. uh, Why else? Where else would the king of the Jews be born except in uh, Jerusalem? And so they went there first. They didn't know uh, Micah's prophecy concerning the fact that he would be born in uh, Bethlehem. And so they start asking around for directions to where they might find the king of the Jews. And here you have one of the great overlooked miracles in the Bible. Wise men uh, pulling aside and asking for directions to their destination. (laughs) Their reaction upon seeing the star continue to lead them further on their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, we're told in verses 9 and 10, they were filled with exceedingly great joy. And then when they entered in to the home where Jesus was, they fell down, verse 11 tells us, and they worshipped Jesus. And they presented three great gifts to Jesus. Gold, which was the gift that you offered a king. It was the gift that was fit for a king. And it was their acknowledgement. Never think of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh as just these gifts that they happen to pull out of their hat and bring from Arabia or Babylon or whatever. They were offering these gifts to Jesus as an acknowledgement, not only of the fact that he was these things, but that they believed him to be those things personally. It was their personal expression of worship of him as a king. They offered to him frankincense, which was an ointment or perfume, and it speaks of the beautiful fragrance of Jesus' sinless life. Frankincense was used by the priests in different capacities, so it spoke of Jesus come into the world not merely as a king but also as a priest because we need a priest as well as a king. And they offered him then myrrh, which was used in those days in the preparation of a dead body, very, very strongly associated with death. An unusual gift for these men uh, to bring to this baby, but it spoke of the suffering that he would endure as our Savior 
in order to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation that we so desperately needed. And these gifts represented all that Jesus was and is, a king, a priest, and a savior, come into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And again, as I said, this was not merely an acknowledgement that was theological or theoretical, or this is who he is to the whole world. They were saying, this is who he is to us. This is an expression of our personal faith in him. The second reaction to Jesus' birth is illustrated by a king by the name of Herod. He was officially a, the ruler of Israel. He ruled over Israel by permission of the Roman Senate. He was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. And because he was not an, a descendant of King David or of the patriarch Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, he was a descendant of Jacob's brother Esau. And thus he was an Edomite. And, be, and because he was an Edomite and not a Jew, he was never fully accepted by the Jews as their king. So he always sensed this vulnerability that, uh, that he would one day be overthrown by the Jews. And he always felt that he was vulnerable to the fact that someone might come along who was truly a Jew, full bloodline a Jew, who could rightly uh, show the Jewish people that they were their king and be displaced from his position. On a personal level, he's a very wicked man, very paranoid, very fearful man, a very cruel man, and he would... Uh, with a very, very dark heart. In his paranoia and in his jealousy, he made life very dangerous for everyone around him. He would eliminate anyone who he considered to be a threat uh, to his power. He murdered his wife, Marianne, and her mother, Alexandra. He murdered his oldest son, Antipater, he murdered two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, and all of them were assassinated by him because in some paranoid fit he felt that they were a threat to his reign. His reputation was such that even Augustus, the Roman emperor, declared that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. And because Herod was a so-called king of the Jews, he refrained from pork, which made all pigs in the kingdom uh, very, very safe. But as the self-appointed king of the Jews, he thought nothing of murdering anyone that he deemed to be a threat, including his sons. When he was 70 years old, not long after this particular event, and he knew that he was about to die. He then ushered himself away to his palace in Jericho, which was one of the most beautiful cities of, of his reign. And as he was approaching death, he ordered uh, all of his government, his officials, his kind of military uh, force that he had that was around him to arrest all of the prominent men in Israel so that at the moment of his death, that they would then kill all of these prominent men and create a great lamentation in the land. He knew 
that if he died alone, that not a single person would shed a tear for him in the land of Israel. And so rather than have that be kind of the witness against him, he was going to kill the men that were prized and loved the most within the land so that at least somebody would be crying for some reason at the time of his death. And that's the man who now hears the news of the birth of the king of the Jews. And this aroused his greatest fear. And his reaction to the news of the birth of Jesus as the Magi then arrive in Jerusalem. And believe me, when they came into Jerusalem, they created a tremendous stir. Uh, we tend to think of the fact that there were three Magi uh, simply because they gave three gifts. We don't know that at all. There could have been a very large group of them. They would not have been traveling alone. They would have been traveling with servants. They would have probably been traveling with their families. They would have been traveling with all of the supplies necessary to cover a distance of several hundred miles from where they came to then come to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Bethlehem. When they hit Jerusalem, the news spread all over the place. Everybody knew about it. This large group of magi who've come into town and they're asking directions concerning the birth of the king of Israel. And word gets then to Herod, who's immediately threatened by all of this. And when they mentioned that they had come looking for a recently born king of the Jews, this really got Herod upset. And because of his madness and his his cruelty. He couldn't tolerate any threat to his throne, even from a baby. He jumps into this uh, damage control mode very quickly. And concerning the Jewish religious leader, he gathered them together and said, where is the king of the Jews to be born? They plainly told them that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, just as Micah had prophesied. And then, G and then Herod uh, then went to the wise men, and he feigned a genuine interest in the child. And he then directed them to Bethlehem as, a, as the end of their search. And he said, go find the child. And when you find the child, come back and inform me concerning who the child is so that I can then go and worship him also. He has no intention of worshiping uh, the king of the Jews or Jesus. He's intent only on the destruction of Jesus. And when the wise men did not return to give him the news that he needed, what is the individual child that you went to? What home? Which one? So that he could strategically go in and just take out and kill, execute, destroy one baby. Having Not having that news, he then sends his military force into Jerusalem, into Bethlehem, and orders the death of every little boy aged newborn to two years old. And they carried out the orders of this crazy king. And what Herod didn't realize is that Joseph and Mary, with Jesus, had fled to Egypt under the direction of the Lord, Egypt being outside of Herod's jurisdiction. What was the reason for Herod's reaction to the birth of Jesus? It was because Jesus was a threat to him, a threat to his power, his position, his wealth, his lifestyle, his sin, his wickedness, which is, as Jesus said, is at the core of all rejection of him. Jesus said, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then here it is. Jesus said, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done by God. And it's true. And if all hostility in the world today toward Jesus was to be fully exposed, as it's fully exposed before the very eyes of God, behind all of the words about the separation of church and state and the attempt to remove the Bible from schools and the removal of the Ten Commandments from public buildings and from life itself, to the attempt to remove Christ even from Christmas, to turn it into Xmas and to turn it into winter break, if we could see all as God sees things, we would find darkness at the heart of every person that's engaged in that kind of activity, the darkness of sin and the darkness of pride and the recognition, as Herod had, that Jesus represents a unique threat to the practice of that sin without conviction. And if a person will not repent of his sin, as God calls upon every man to do so, then that man must get busy about God's destruction, about Jesus' destruction, and it's as old as Herod. The third and final group we see here is the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes in Jerusalem to the news of Jesus' birth, the Jewish religious leaders at the time. The chief priests were the highest and the most powerful Jewish religious leaders of that day. The scribes were the experts in the law, the experts in the Old Testament. And their reaction to the news of Jesus' birth and the miracle that brought the Magi to find him and to worship him was astonishing. You would have never guessed it. If you were writing a book, you couldn't guess that this would be their reaction. And their reaction to all of this news, the supernatural of God leading these Gentiles hundreds of miles across a desert to come and to worship a Jesus, a Savior, that they weren't willing to go five miles to go and inquire concerning their reaction to the news of his birth was complete indifference. You would have thought that upon hearing, knowing the prophecy in Micah, knowing the prophecies in Daniel chapter 9 concerning the timing of the birth of Jesus, that they would have made a beeline immediately for Bethlehem upon hearing the news in order to worship Jesus, but they didn't. They were completely indifferent in the same way that the news of Jesus' birth today goes largely unnoticed by the majority of people in our country each year at Christmas time.
The message comes, the message of a Savior. It's brought to human hearts. It's brought to people's attention. The overwhelming majority of people respond to it to complete indifference. Let's go to the mall. Let's go to Starbucks and get one of those holiday drinks or whatever it might be. But let's not think about him at all. Those Gentile magi put these Jewish religious leaders to shame. The sacrifice that they were willing to endure, the distance they were willing to cover in order to come to know the truth about the Christ and who he was and then to worship him. Again, they couldn't go five miles to investigate the birth of Jesus. But then things were going very well for them in the religion business. Lots of money was being made. They had power. They had influence. There's no need to do anything that might upset the apple cart, even if that something was the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And many deliberately ignore Jesus today because they're afraid of what they might discover if they investigate his life and his teaching, the demands that he might place upon them, And they don't want to risk that he might upset the apple cart of their little life that they have put together for themselves. And these three reactions to the same news of the birth of a Savior, the King of the Jews, the Magi responded with awe and worship. Herod was troubled by Jesus' birth and sought his destruction. The religious leaders responded with complete indifference. And every Christmas season, that scene of 2,000 years ago is played out again and again and again and again. There are those who are filled with awe and worship at the news of his birth. And then there are those who are troubled by the mention any mention of Jesus, the birth of a Savior, with all the paranoia and insanity of Herod, they attempt to destroy any knowledge of him because his life and his teaching poses a threat to the sin and the darkness in their life that they're determined not to give up. And then they're the indifferent, the mass of people who are content with their life just as it is, And they have no interest at all in investigating Jesus for themselves, at least not yet. And it's so important for those of us who know the Lord and who love the Lord that we're not to allow the hostility of some, the indifference of others toward him to adversely affect us or to rob us of our joy over knowing him. But in knowing that, realizing that this has been the case for 2,000 years and the encouragement that the, the Magi are to us to let nothing in the context of this fallen world that we live in, to let nothing distract us from the joy that is ours, that comes with knowing him as our king and as our priest And as our Savior, a joy that we're going to sing about 
in just a moment. If you sit here today and you are not yet a Christian, what star, what circumstance in your life is the Holy Spirit leading you, using to lead you to Jesus? And he's doing something. Why would you be in a church on Sunday morning when there's 125,000 channels on the television, your home or your apartment, or a million places to go and things to do? No, you're in church because you're following some star that God has put before you that he is now using. And it can be something like a heartbreak, a catastrophe, a loss in your life, or some situation that you realize outstrips all of your resources, or maybe for the first time in your life. And sometimes it happens in the Christmas season. It isn't a joyous season for everyone. Sometimes it's this season that causes a person that's supposed to be the highlight of kind of the secular world. It gloms on to the religious or the spiritual element to make it its own and not realizing what it does to people where people stop and they face this current season and they look at it and they think to themselves, if I can't be happy now, If I can't be happy at this time of the year, something must be irreparably wrong with me. I remember that as a kid, the day after Christmas was the worst day of the whole year. In fact, I didn't even have to wait till the next day, just mid-afternoon. It was like, is this all there is? Is this just what we built up to? And we opened up these feeble presents and we had something to eat that was a little more than ordinary. And here I am, left as hopeless as I ever was, and with the same old me to live with for another year. It seemed like a hoax. It seemed like a cruel joke that the culture had played on me, trying to understand Christmas apart from Christ. So what's your star? And you haven't even recognized it as a star that God is using you to bring you to his son. That today he might be your Lord and your king and your priest and your savior today. And that star, those circumstances, whatever that is that's got you starting on a search for the meaning of life that you've never engaged in before in your life in the way that you are now. That search ends with Christ. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they would love to pray with you to invite this Savior born to the world personally into your heart that he might become your personal king and your personal priest and your personal Savior today and to begin a relationship with him that will outlast the heavens and the earth 
and to receive the forgiveness of sins today. But not merely the forgiveness of sins, but now the power to live a life that is completely different from the one that you knew. He doesn't just come to forgive us and then leave us in the same sin and self-dominated life that we've lived all of our lives. But he comes in and gives us the power to live an entirely different quality of life. And then this relationship ends in the glory of heaven. Oh, what is bound up in Christ that he makes available to you today in the gift that is his son. And so in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing a final worship song to the Lord. But don't you leave until you come forward and say, I don't understand everything that that man said today. But I understand that I'm on a search and that it ends with Jesus. And I want to have it end successfully, the conclusion of my search today, which you now talk to me about how this ends and pray with me to receive Jesus into my heart. And they will be glad to do so. Let's stand together and we'll have the worship team come forward as well. And let's pray together. Lord, we give you praise this morning for our testimony, every one of them different, and all of the different things that you used in our life. Maybe what we were studying as the Magi in school, in high school, and in college. Maybe some heartbreak. Maybe the awesome responsibility of raising a child. Whatever it was, Lord, there was a path that you led us on, and we remember it. And we give you praise, Lord, for as hard as that path was, that it brought us, Lord, to the final and successful conclusion of our search. And that is a relationship with our Savior today. We thank you for him. We thank you for all that he has brought into our lives, how rich he has made us in a way and with riches that can never, ever be touched or taken away from us. We give you praise. We give you thanks for Jesus in this place and from our hearts today. And we do so in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.